All right, good morning. Uh, my name is Jared. I'm one of the elders here at Mercy Hill, and uh, we're excited just to be together and, and gather in the month of December. I want to be one of the first to say Merry Christmas to you. Uh, we know Christmas is a, is a season. It's not just a day, and so you can be merry more than one day, so we can go ahead and say Merry Christmas. We can start saying that now, and uh, I, I don't know about you guys. Do you guys remember Christmas as a child? I mean, do you remember being just, just young and the Christmas season coming. I mean, everybody remember being, being a kid? Like, something magical about that, right? Christmas as a child, the magic, uh, the anticipation around it. Um, I remember being young, and you start seeing lights go up in the neighborhood on houses, and you start to get excited. That's how you know Christmas is really coming. Uh, you see... Um, catalogs start showing up. I don't know if that happens as much anymore. You know, Sears catalog. Like when the Sears catalog came in, like that is time to get out the pen, right? All right, you start flipping pages. You, I, I circled all kinds of stuff. I had no business circling in that catalog. Of course, I never got it either. But uh, it was just fun to flip through there and start to you know, what do I want for Christmas? And start circling things that you want for Christmas. And uh, I remember decorating the tree. So it was a big deal at my house. We'd, uh, you know, the day finally came. I think my brother and I probably begged for it um, several times before my parents finally gave in. But they, find, you know, we would say, let's decorate for Christmas. Let's decorate for Christmas. And, you know, of course, for us, that just meant all the fun stuff. For my parents, it meant we've got to go in the basement and drag everything out of the basements. And it's a lot of work. And, but they, they finally, the day would come when we would go downstairs and we'd start dragging all this stuff up. And uh, we decorate the Christmas tree. And uh, we had all kinds of decorations that we made when we were little kids that we had brought home from school and all these things that, you know, you just see them once a year when you pull them out. And there's all these memories attached with them and you start to remember all these different things. And um, the smell of a Christmas candle, of course, you know, you can only light Christmas candles like in the month of December. Uh, so those candles that smell like Christmas trees so that you can get away with having a fake Christmas tree, uh, you know, just like the candle, it's like, the, it's like you got a real tree. Um, all those things just kind of bring back these memories of Christmas. And listen, I, I knew growing up the true meaning of Christmas. I grew up in a Christian home um, where Christ was taught and the, the quote-unquote reason for the season was always Jesus. Um, but let's face it, when I was a kid, it was also about the presents, um, if I'm being honest. It, it, was, it was a little bit about the presents. Um, and uh, even my daughter, um, India, this week at school, they've started learning all these different cultures and different countries around the world and how they celebrate the holidays. And she came home from school one day this past week. She said, Dad, I wish we celebrated Hanukkah. <laughs> Why is that, Indy? They get eight days of presents. We just get one. And then she hung her head and said, but we're not Jewish. <laughs> no, we're not. Praise the Lord. Christmas one day we'll have to do. Um, and listen, I love a good gift as much as, as anyone, but so much of the joy of the Christmas season seems to come in the waiting. It's in the anticipation. It's in the that this many days till Christmas countdown that you have at your house. We, we have 
two of them in our house somehow. We've got a snowman where you move his nose one day every month of December, and it counts down to Christmas. And we've got a little truck that you move these numbers around on the back, and it counts down the days to Christmas. And so much of the joy in the season just comes in that anticipation, in, in the preparing, in the looking forward to that day. I even remember when I was young, I distinctly remember the day after Christmas, there's a, this feeling of, of disappointment, not because I, I didn't get the gift that I wanted or Christmas Day wasn't wonderful, because it generally was, but the feeling of disappointment was just that that season was over. Like there was, you know, you just got January after that, like... Who likes January? It's just cold. Um, and so there's a feeling of disappointment when that season of anticipation is over. And so there's a, a certain beauty that we see just in, in the waiting and the looking forward to something and knowing that Christmas was coming. And the English word that we use, Advent, it comes from a Latin word, Adventus, it literally translated means coming, and Adventus is the Latin translation of the Greek word uh, parousia, which is used about 25 times in the New Testament. So we generally use that word Advent around Christmas time, that's usually what it's associated with. Uh, to, to the New Testament writers and readers, it would have been a fairly familiar word, this idea of, of coming, of waiting, and anticipation. And as Christians, we generally observe Advent as the coming of Christ in two directions because you have the, the previous coming that we celebrate at Christmas time, the coming of Jesus as a baby, but then we also have the second coming, the second Advent that we look forward to on the day that Jesus comes back. And so at Christmas time, we look back to and we commemorate the first coming of Christ at Christmas time. And so for Mercy Hill, we are going to kick off our Advent series um, by continuing our study through the life of David. And coincidentally or not, uh, we find ourselves in chapter 7. And in chapter 7 of 2 Samuel, this passage is often referred to as the, uh, as the Davi, Davi, I can't even say it, Davidic covenant um, where God promises to David that his family will continue. And we're going to look at this passage today, and we're going to see that there are multiple meanings involved here. And uh, we're going to pull some truths out of it. So um, I'm going to read this passage one more time, and then I, I want to just quickly summarize it for us, just to be sure uh, that we know exactly what uh, the Word of God says, and then we're going to pull some truths out of it. So let me, if, if I can, just read this to you one more time. Chapter 7, we're in verse, uh, starting in, in verse 1. Now, when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all of his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. And all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. 
And I have been with you wherever you went, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne in his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So quick summary, just so, because that's a lot of words, just so we kind of know what's going on here. We start out with a picture, and you have David, uh, and this is the first time that David has experienced a real season of peace. First time. David was always a man of action, a man of war. You can go back all the way to when he was watching his father's sheep in a field, and he tells stories about the times he had to fight off bears and lions from attacking the sheep. He's always been a man of action. And then the first real story you see, he comes up and he's like, you know, everybody's scared of Goliath. David raises his hand and says, hey, I'll fight him. David has never been a person of peace. He's always been a person of action. You remember the songs that they used to sing, Saul has killed his thousands, David has killed his tens of thousands. He was a man of war, always going to and fro, a man of action. And for the first time, he finds himself in a season of peace, and he's just kind of hanging out with Nathan at the beginning of this passage. Nathan was a prophet. You can kind of almost picture them like just hanging out one evening, sipping a cup of coffee or tea or something, um, just kind of shooting the breeze. And he acknowledges to Nathan, he just simply acknowledges that he lives in a house of cedar and the ark, the, which, which represented the presence of God, is just hanging out in a tent outside somewhere. And he acknowledges that fact. And Nathan essentially says, like, hey, say no more. Like, I hear what you're saying, and that's a good idea. Like, let's, let's roll with it. And so David suggests that, hey, we need to build a place for the ark, something that's fitting for the glory of the Lord. And I think Nathan's heart is, is good here. I think it's in a good place where he's, he's, his concern is for God's glory. And even, even Nathan thinks that this is a good idea, that we would build a house for the Lord. And, you know, uh, you know, Scripture doesn't go into all of their conversation. I can just kind of imagine them hanging out, staying up late at night. Maybe they're drawing some sketches out, you know, what this thing's going to look like. Let's use this material here, all, all these different ideas for what this great uh, house of the Lord is going to look like. But that night, things change. God comes to Nathan in verses 4 through 7. He essentially says, hey, go tell David that if I wanted a house from him, I would have asked for one. I mean, that's kind of a summary of what he says. Go tell David, if I wanted a house, I would have asked for one. In verses 8 through 17, God says, David, hey, you think you're going to build me a house? No. David, I'm going to make you a house. 
And he goes on, he says, I took you from the middle of a field, from the middle of, of watching sheep, and I made you king over Israel. I wiped out all the enemies from before you. I placed you where you are today. And when you die, your house that I will build for you will live on through your lineage, immediately through your son and eternally, which we see ultimately through the coming of Jesus. Verse 16 says, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. All right, so, so what can we learn from this passage? What truths can we pull out of this? Uh, and what, how can we apply these to our lives today? What truths about God's character do we see present in this passage? And the first thing we see is this, it's simple. It's God's ways are not our ways. God's ways are not our ways. Isaiah 55, 8 simply says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. There's nothing inherently wrong or sinful about David's idea. In fact, God tells David's son Solomon to go ahead and, and build that temple. So there, the idea of building a temple for the Lord, there's nothing wrong with that idea. Nathan, who is a prophet of the Lord, at least initially seemed to agree with David. Yeah, this is a good time. Let's go ahead and build this temple. It's a time of peace. Um, we've never had a chance to do this before. Let's go ahead and move forward with it. Um, and David, at, at this time, like we said, is, is a season of peace. And uh, you, you kind of wonder if David really knew what to do with himself. Like, always been a man of war. Suddenly there's a season of peace. And David's just kind of brainstorming, well, what, what do I do next? David is trying to do a good thing. It seems reasonable that this would be the next thing, that this would be the next step in the life of David, be to take on this project of building a house for the Lord. However, this is a, a great reminder that God's servants often mean well, but we lack God's wisdom. God's servants often mean well, but we lack God's wisdom. And this text just testifies that the kingdom of God is never safe just in human hands. Because humans can have great ideas, but they may not be the direction that God wants, wants us to go. This is a reminder to go to God in prayer for all things. To continually seek the wisdom of God and not assume our next steps not assume our next steps. And the truth is, this is very humbling for us. It's very humbling. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. John 15, 5 is a very familiar passage, and we've talked on it multiple times here before. It says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. From apart from me, you can do nothing. And listen, as much as we don't like to admit it, we tend to be incredibly prideful and arrogant creatures. We tend to be prideful and arrogant creatures, waking up oftentimes day after day, assuming what the day holds, assuming that we know what's best 
that we know what's best for our families or for our homes or for our children or for our churches or for God's ministry that he's placed before us. And instead of turning to God moment by moment, continually asking the Lord's wisdom, God, what would you have us do? We so often make assumptions on what we think is the best route to go. And we tend to generally rely on God for the big decisions but leave him out of the details. And we are really reminded in this passage that God loves the details of life. That God loves the details of life. The mundane, boring, what should I watch on TV tonight details of life. That God cares for those intimately. And there's no course of action that God deems beneath him that he does not desire to be involved in. Psalm 37, 23 says, The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. The the New Living Translation translates that a little differently. Uh, The second half of that, it it translates it as, He delights in every detail of our lives. He delights in every detail of our lives. I've been reading a book recently called The Liturgy of the Ordinary. And it's a book written by um, a woman named Tish Harrison Warren, who is an Anglican priest. And I, I would encourage uh, just anyone who's, who's struggling to find uh, God's purpose in the mundane and ordinary day-to-day life uh, to, to check out this book. Uh, she does a great job of essentially walking through just a normal day. And so some of the chapter titles in, in this book are, are, are things like Waking Up. Um, she has a chapter called Making the Bed. And it's, and it's a beautiful picture of how, of how God entered into chaos and brought order. And when she makes her bed in the morning, she reminds herself that in some small way, she can bring a, a, a certain level of order to the chaos that is, of course, the bed after you get out of it in the morning. And it's just a reminder for her of the goodness of God, of how he brings order to chaos. Uh, she has chapters like brushing teeth, fighting with her husband, checking email, etc. And just all these mundane tasks of life that we generally leave God out of because they're just the things that we have to do to get through the day. And she does an excellent job of pointing all of those mundane details of life back to truths of, of God's word, truths of the gospel, and how Jesus desires to, to meet us even in those mundane details of life. And she has a a quote I want to share it with you. And I don't have it on the screen, so you just have to listen well. Um, It says this, A sign hangs on the wall in a new monastic Christian community house. The sign says, Everyone wants a revolution. No one wants to do the dishes. (laughs) I was and remain a Christian who longs for revolution, for things to be made new and whole in beautiful and big ways. But what I am slowly seeing is that you can't get to the revolution without learning to do the dishes. The kind of spiritual life and disciplines needed to sustain the Christian life are quiet, repetitive, and ordinary. I often want to skip the boring daily stuff to get to the thrill of an edgy faith. But it's in the dailiness of the Christian faith the making the bed, the doing the dishes, the praying for our enemies, the reading of the Bible, the quiet, the small, that God's transformation takes root and grows. 
God desires deeply to be a part of the details of our life because oftentimes his ways are not our ways. And the choices that God would have us make are not necessarily always going to be the most pragmatic or the, most, uh, or the ones that make the most sense to us. He desires to be in the details. And I, I recognize that that's not always easy because life is, is busy. Life is, I, know, I know life at my house can be busy. Life at your houses can be busy. Uh, there, there are times when I'm, I'm just trying to get the dishes done and like, it takes like an hour just to get them unloaded because, you know, kids are just constantly needing something or kids are constantly um, just drawing my attention elsewhere or just the, the busyness of the house. And it's the, the easy thing to do sometimes is just to, to occupy them so that I can finish doing what I'm doing. But the truth is sometimes your, your kids are, are quote-unquote driving you crazy because they need you. And I think if we could stop in some of those moments of, of seemingly mundane life and just listen to the Spirit at work inside of us, I think there are times, and you can apply this to multiple situations, not just the dishes, but I think there are times when the Spirit would say, hey, you can do the dishes later. Go sit with your kids because they need you. God desires to work in the details, and we oftentimes don't listen in the mundane. So God's ways are not our ways. Another thing we learn from this passage, God's plans, they're, they're bigger than our plans. God's plans are bigger than our plans. Listen, this all, all this started out in this passage with a simple idea that David proposed to Nathan to build a house for God. That's it. Like, God didn't just show up in the presence with, uh, with this big idea or this big plan. Like, this started with David. David had a plan. David had an idea. God had a response to that. He had a counterproposal. Hey, David, you want to build me a house? No, David, I'm going to build you a house. His counterproposal is to build a house for David in the sense of a, of a dynasty, of a family that would continue. Verse 5, he says, are you the one to build me a house? God speaking to David. That question is answered in verse 11. He says, no, the Lord, himself, the Lord himself will establish a house for you. So I, I want to recognize that in this passage, there's some ambiguity here. Uh, because David does have a son named Solomon who does actually build a house for the Lord, but there's some double meaning going on. And uh, I think verses 12 through 13 primarily have Solomon in mind. Solomon is David's son uh, through, Beth through Bathsheba, and he is the one who will actually succeed David on the throne. He's the one who eventually builds a temple for the Lord. But verses 14 through 16 push this in a direction that is far beyond Solomon. And I think there's several ways that we can see that. Um, firstly, the, the word offspring in verse 12. That word offspring, it's an echo of the word that's used with Abraham. So there's a covenant with Abraham where God says that, hey, your offspring, Abraham, are going uh, are, are to be numberless. They're not even going to be able to count them. They're going to be so many. And so there's an idea here that this, uh, this word offspring, it can be, it's one of those weird words, it can be singular or it can be plural. You can say offspring in, in just relation to one child. You can say offspring in relation to multiple children or multiple descendants. Um, and the, the truth is that in some ways it's, it's both. That he does refer to Solomon, 
to the fact that Solomon will build the temple, but he also refers to a greater offspring, a greater number, and one particular offspring eventually ending in the coming of Jesus. And there's a point of the double meaning because Christ is the promised Savior in this passage. And through him, he will save a great multitude. But it's not just a a promise of succession on the throne. It's a promise of salvation. We'll see salvation come through the line of David, through the dynasty or the, the house of people that God says he desires to build through David. You also see God's promise to be a father to David's son. In verse 14, he says, I'll be a father to him. Exodus 4, if you go back to Exodus, in that chapter, God describes Israel with some certain language. He describes Israel as my son. Uh, Now, you see the same language here is applied to the king. The Davidic king is really going to be a personification of the nation of Israel. And you see that moving forward where the king is just kind of represents the entire nation. And on a practical level, throughout all of Israel's history, the, the country essentially went as the king went. So if the, if the king was faithful, then you would see the, the country do well. And if, you, if the king was not faithful, then you would see God's judgment come on that nation. And so as the king went, so went the nation of Israel. You also see God promises an eternal kingdom. Verses 13 and 16, he, he refers to a kingdom that is eternal, that never stops. And so where Saul's dynasty was cut short, where God says he cut Saul's dynasty, he says that, David, your family will be eternal. And through the centuries that followed, God kept that promise. And it wasn't always pretty. Uh, At some point after this, the nation of Israel divides. Uh, There are uh, ten northern tribes who keep the name Israel, two southern tribes who are referred to as Judah. And even as the northern kingdom struggled throughout all of Judah's history, the king was always a son of David. You see God being faithful to keep his promise that this would be an eternal kingdom following the line of David. God's plans were so much greater than David's. David wanted to build a house for God, a literal building that they could put the ark in where God's presence could reside, but God wanted to build a people. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, what does God desire for you, and where might your plans fall short of God's plans? What does God desire for you, and how are the plans that you've made, maybe they're very practical, and maybe they were plans uh, that just seem like the logical next step, but where, what does God have planned for you? And where do your plans that you've already made fall short of the plans that God has for you? I think those are important questions as we spend time with the Lord, as we allow the Holy Spirit to speak His truth into our hearts that we have to ask if we're ever going to be able to listen to what God would have planned for us. And the last thing that we, we can kind of learn from this passage is this. King Jesus is greater than any other king. King Jesus is greater than any other king. In Luke chapter 1, the angel Gabriel announces to Mary, Luke chapter 1, verses 31 through 33, says, And behold, 
you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And one of his kingdom, and of his kingdom there will be no end. I don't know if you heard that or not. But this proclamation that Gabriel makes to Mary is full of references that you can go back and see in this passage of 2 Samuel chapter 7. Verse 9, it said he will be, well, the, the idea that he will be great that the angel Gabriel said to Mary fulfills verse 9. The son of the most high fulfills verses, verse 14. A throne that never ends fulfills verse 16. Both the adoptive uh, father and mother of Jesus were of the, the Davidic line. So this idea that David's kingdom would never end, that his succession would never stop, comes true ultimately through the coming of Jesus. And Jesus is not just another king in the line of David. He is its ultimate destination. All of the prophecy that you see in the Old Testament eventually points to Jesus the king who ultimately rescues God's people, the king who ultimately reigns over them forever. He is the fulfillment of God's promises. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is a beautiful passage. All the promises of God find their yes in him, in Jesus. And where God appointed Solomon ultimately to build a temple on Mount Zion, Jesus came to build the true temple of God. And rather than building it with cedar or stone, he came to build it with his own body and his own blood. Solomon built a temple where God symbolically, symbolically dwelt. Jesus is creating a people in whom God spiritually dwells by his Holy Spirit. Do you see that connection, that connection to this idea that David wanted to build a, a house, a physical house where the ark could reside, but God says, no, I'm going to build you a house. Ultimately, again, the, the promise finds its yes in Jesus. Jesus came to build a house, but he wasn't going to build it with stone and cedar. He was going to build it by his own flesh and blood, and that house is us today. It's the church. It's the people who would, who would come and have faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And now God's presence doesn't have to live in a house. God's presence can live inside of us. where the Holy Spirit dwells. So Jesus is greater, not only because he was God's son, not only because he lived a perfect life, not only because he died on the cross and rose again three days later, not only because he ascended to heaven where he sits at the right hand of God, Jesus is greater because he also lives in you. Because you are the temple. You are the house where the Spirit of God dwells. Romans 8.11 says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The spirit of God dwells in us. And that's part of the, part of the reason when the angel showed up to Mary, he said, You will call him Emmanuel, which is God with us. Jesus came as a baby 
to be physically present with humanity. I, I don't know about you guys. I've, I've found myself thinking before, I think that this Christian life would be easier if, if I was one of the disciples who actually got to walk with Jesus. Like, has anybody ever thought that? Like, you know, if I was alive back then and I got to just walk with Jesus and see Jesus just in, in his physical presence and if I just got to see the miracles happen and I got to see him die on the cross and see him raise again after three days, like I, somehow I think all of this might be a little bit easier. But Jesus actually says something really surprising. John 16, 7, he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Hey, that, that verse should really just blow our minds. Like Jesus essentially says, hey, I know I'm here with you right now, but listen, it's better if I leave because I'm sending something better that is to your advantage, and that is having the Holy Spirit alive inside of you rather than just me walking around outside of you. God's presence can live inside of you. And how often we fail to recognize the beauty of that. The fact that we are the house of God where his spirit dwells. He lives inside of us so that the power of the Holy Spirit can be at work. So we don't need a prophet like Nathan to tell us God's will. We don't need a Levitical priest to intercede. We don't need to know what to pray. Uh, Romans even tells us that the Holy Spirit of God that lives inside of us intercedes on our behalf to the Father when we don't even know the words to pray. We are the temple. We are the house that the Spirit of God dwells in. Jesus is greater than anything that this world has to offer because he desires to be with us. And he made a way that that could be possible. Emmanuel, God with us. Not just with, with Jesus coming as a baby to be physically present. But with the Holy Spirit that now lives inside of our hearts. He is with us. There's a great anticipation associated with the Advent season. We started off talking about just the anticipation of Christmas and the, and the season and, and what it brings and looking forward to all the things. And, th and there are great things in the season. Um, there are great things. You know, we, we sing songs that we only sing once a year around Christmas time. We go to Christmas parties. We do programs at schools. We see family members that a lot of times we don't see any other time of the year. Uh, there's just a lot of good things associated with this season. But I want us to remember today when Jesus came, when Emmanuel came, he didn't come so that we could just decorate a tree or so that we could sing jingle bells or, or even spend time with family. He came as the ultimate fulfillment of this passage that we read today, of David chapter 7, the ultimate fulfillment to build a house, a house that's not made of cedar or stone or wood, but a house that is made of the body and blood of Jesus. And so this morning, we're going we're gonna to transition into a time of, of communion and before you come forward to take communion, how we 
do this at Mercy Hill. We come down the, the center aisle. We'll have people serving uh, just the elements of communion to you. And as you take the bread, uh, someone will say to you, the body of Christ broken for you or something along those lines. And as you dip it into the juice, uh, you'll hear the blood of Christ poured out for you. And as you come this morning, I want us to just be reminded that those, that body and that blood was broken for you and poured out for you as a fulfillment of, of this chapter, of this passage that we read today, so that you could be the house that is referenced in this passage, the house that God is building where his presence can dwell is you. I'm going to ask the band to, to come back up and we're going to wrap up this morning. We sang a song uh, just a little while ago, and I just want to read uh, the, the words of that song over us. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. O come, O wisdom from on high, who ordered all things mightily to us the path of knowledge show and teach us in its way to go. O come, O come, great Lord of might, who to your tribes on Sinai's height in ancient times did give the law and cloud and majesty and all. O come, O branch of Jesse's stem, unto your own and rescue them. From depths of hell your people save and give them victory over the grave. O come, O key of David, come and open wide our heavenly home. Make safe for us the heavenward road and bar the way to death's abode. O come, O bright and morning star, and bring us comfort from afar. Dispel the shadows of the night and turn our darkness into light. O come, O come, o come King of nations, bind in one heart of all mankind. Bid all our sad divisions cease and be yourself our King of peace. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to you, O Israel. Let us pray.